This is Philosophy, the intersection of meaning and money. We live in a world of an abundance of stuff, but a scarcity of meaning and purpose. On Philosophy, we explore how a philosophy of life can help us pursue meaningful endeavors and prepare for the future while enjoying today. Money is entangled in almost every aspect of modern life, so any serious inquiry for self-knowledge and personal development requires an exploration of the meaning of money. We'll learn from business leaders, entrepreneurs, philosophers, investors, historians, and others to help us think better, work better, invest better, build better, and live better. This show is brought to you by Vermillion Private Wealth. Thanks for being a part of this quest. I wanted to start Philosophy off with a bang, so today's guest is none other than Massimo Piucci. Massimo is one of the modern thought leaders and teachers of Stoic philosophy. I credit Massimo for being one of the influences that piqued my interest in the philosophy. He's written several books, including How to Be a Stoic, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Living, A Handbook for New Stoics, How to Thrive in a World Out of Your Control, and his most recent book, which is the topic of our conversation, The Quest for Character, What the Story of Socrates and Alcibiades Teaches Us about our search for good leaders. If the name Alcibiades doesn't register, you're in for a treat. He's a fascinating historical character that has a lot to teach. Unfortunately, in many ways, it's about what not to do. Massimo is a professor of philosophy at City College of New York and an educator outside academia through his writing. There's a lot to learn from history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I know you'll learn something today about character, virtue, and truth. Enjoy. Hello, Massimo. Welcome to the show. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Well, I've got to say, I'm a I'm a huge fan. I first learned about you through the great course on Stoicism, uh, which for me was kind of a primer that uh, sent me down the the, the rabbit hole <laughs> and uh, got me reading the ancient texts and then modern adaptations and and uh, versions of the ancient texts, and really just got me interested in stoicism and even more broadly just philosophy in general so so that was a huge service and i i appreciate uh you for that thank you i appreciate the appreciation <laughs> i uh, uh i also have read a couple of your books including your most recent one which is the uh the quest for character what the story of socrates and alcibiades teaches us about our search for good leaders and uh Right now, I think is a good time uh, as any to explore leadership uh, and lack thereof, and and what we look for in leaders, and how we can can either create better leaders or, or choose better leaders. So uh, I think the book is really timely, and I and I really enjoyed it and learned a lot about Socrates, of course, but Alcibiades as a character, yes, I knew little uh, about. So it was kind of cool to to get another uh, ancient character that I think has. A lot to teach us, but maybe in the way of what not to do. Exactly. It's kind of in, in the negative. In fact, it's my fascination with Alcibiades that got me started on this project. You know, the guy was incredible. I'm I'm surprised that uh, there hasn't been a movie yet about his life. But, he, you know, he was impossibly handsome, uh, uber rich, very brave, very... Uh, uh, you know, ambitious and, uh, you know, dashing. So he had everything. And, of course, he thought that he was obviously entitled to be the leader of Athens and, and lead the Athenians in the Peloponnesian War against uh, Sparta. 
The only problem is he, he lacked the only thing that, according to Socrates, you actually need for that kind of job, and that's wisdom. <laughs> you know, a good a good character. And and so there's um you know the second chapter in the book starts out with this dialogue between Socrates and Alcibiades, because. Uh, Alcibiades is very young and he's going to Socrates. He was Socrates' friend and student. And he's going to Socrates and saying, you know, I want to be introduced to the Athenian assembly. I, I want to lead the city and all that. And Socrates says, all right, well, let's talk about this thing. And basically what follows is a sort of a job interview that Socrates conducts about how Alcibiades is going to go uh, about being the leader of Athens. And uh, the more they proceed in their conversation, the more it's clear that Alcibiades is actually not prepared for the job. And at one point, Socrates just lays out pretty thick. He says, um, then alas, Alcibiades, what a condition you suffer from. I hesitate to name it, but it must be said, you are wedded to stupidity, best of men, <laughs> of the most extreme sort, as the argument accuses you and you accuse yourself. So this is why you're leaping into the affairs of the city before you have been educated. So mm. that's pretty pretty harsh. And the that word, was harsh. You know, the word that Socrates uses there, which is often translated as stupidity, is amatia, which in ancient Greek actually comes closer to a concept similar to lack of wisdom or unwisdom. So mm -hmm. what Socrates is saying is like, you know, you got all... All the, the good stuff, except for the one that is really crucial. And so please don't do it. Can, can you imagine anything more stressful and intimidating than having a job interview with Socrates <laughs> uh, sitting on the other side? <laughs> that that right. uh, doesn't sound necessarily fun, but Alcibiades failed miserably. He uh, did. And unfortunately, and unfortunately, of course, he did not follow Socrates' advice, and uh, he went out into politics anyway, and it was, in fact, a disaster. Uh, you know, arguably, Alcibiades was, you know, half responsible for the defeat of Athens in the Peloponnesian War. Um, it was an, an incredible life that he had, but it was like one disaster after another, basically. Constantly starting fires and then, uh, I would say putting them out, but I don't think he put them out. He just moved on to somewhere else and right. started a fire there too. Uh, <laughs> That's right. I, I want to read a, a, a quote from the book, Massimo, that I think for me kind of summarizes the role that ancient philosophy can and, and I would argue should play in our lives or, or certainly in my own. I'll speak for myself at least. Um, and that goes, most people don't think twice about spending a significant amount of effort and resources to get ahead in their career, or even just to maintain their physical health as long as they can. But when it comes to our character, what the ancient Greco-Romans thought was our most precious possession, we hardly give it a thought. And I think that is very true, unfortunately, but I think that also relates, uh, and, and you touched on this in the book to the Epictetus quote, uh, most of us dread the deadening of the body and won't do anything to avoid it. About the deadening of the soul, however, we don't care one iota. Right, exactly, and that is a problem. I think I think it has been a problem, I guess, on and off uh, throughout history. But I think it is a problem, especially in in modern society. We are obsessed, especially Western modern society, consumerist society. We are obsessed with possessions. We're obsessed with body, body image, body health, and, and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, it, it's fine to, you know, go to the gym and eat healthy. That's, that's not, it's not a problem. However, 
we forget the other side of the mm-hmm. equation that the, the other thing that makes us good human being you know uh, healthy human beings that's that's our soul if if you want to put it in terms of uh, that Epictetus uses or our mind in terms of you know a modern modern psychology and it is baffling because when we do care about our mind it tends to be only because we think that it's got some pathology. So, right, you know, a lot of Americans go to psychiatrists and, and, and psychologists, but they do so only when they feel that there's something wrong, and like, you know, depression or anxiety or something like that. Now, that's pretty much like going to the doctor or, or going to the dentist, let's say, only when you have a cavity. Well, you right. shouldn't, right? Uh, you should you should go to the dentist on a regular basis to get cleaned, so that you actually don't get cavities. Same goes for you know uh, you go to the doctor only if you're sick. Well, actually, you should what you should try to do is to live a healthy life, so that that you engage mostly in prevention rather than in fixing things mm-hmm. after they're broken. And so we understand that when it comes to the body, but we don't seem to really get it when it comes to our psyche, our mind. Yeah, and I think when oftentimes when people do, it's it's like you said, it's it's later in life after some catastrophes, and it's it's more of a corrective measure than kind of a, a way of life that you're trying to learn, you know, from the get go or or at least early on. So, you know, as a financial advisor, I work with with and talk about money all day. So it it's really easy, and at times I, I got swept away by the by the money and trying to get my clients to be richer and make money myself and all of these things. And what philosophy's really done for me is help me rein that in a little bit and, and say, look, money, you know, is useful in certain ways. And, but, but really we need to think about what it, what it means in the greater context of being a good person and, and trying to live a, a life well lived. And I think that's what I'm trying to hopefully steer and guide clients uh, towards a little bit. Which yep. may be the opposite of what most people think of right, as, that's right. as a financial advisor. It might, it might be, but you know, there is a, a quote from Epictetus right at the beginning of the discourses where he says, yeah, sure, money is obviously useful, but once you have it, what are you going to do with it? And money isn't going to tell you what to do with it. It's your, your wisdom. It's your judgment that tells you what to do with it. So there's no denying that, you know, good physical health, wealth and, uh, you know, education, all of these other externals, what the, what the Stoics call externals are certainly valuable. They have, they do have value. There's no question that our lives is better if we have them than if we don't. Uh, but what makes them good things? Is not the thing in itself. Is what it's how you use it, right? You can right. have you can have money, for instance, and use it for good things. You can you can use it uh, to flourish personally and help your friends and family, and uh, you know do some good in the world. Or you can use it to corrupt the political system and and, uh, <laughs> and you know and get your way. So it's it's money itself. In fact, is essentially what the Stoics called an indifferent, meaning it's neutral. It's morally neutral. It doesn't make a difference yeah. to your character, which is the important the, the important thing because it is your character that tells you how to use the money. Yeah, and and I think that's one of the things that drew me to stoicism. It doesn't place a positive or negative bent on most things. Yeah, uh, it, it, right. It's really yourself, your character, how you develop your character, what you do, how you treat other people, and we can get into all the all sorts of of, of things like that. And maybe we, we will as we go along, but. Um, let's go back to the book a little bit. Sure. So I'd like to talk more about character and, you know, just getting into the gist of the book. Can you describe, just define what character is and then maybe answer, can it be taught? And 
What did Socrates find out or, or think about it? Right. So the book does start in exactly with that question. Can virtue be taught? And virtue is, is tightly connected with the notion of character. So character is a set of behavioral tendencies. And these behavioral tendencies are referred to as the virtues or the vices if they're, if they're actually negative. So for instance, let's say that you have a friend uh, and you think of that friend as a generous person. Well, you're saying something about his character. You know, he's generous. And what do you mean when you say that? Well, you mean that other things being equal, he engages in generous kind of behavior. So he's helpful to other people. He donates his money or time or whatever it is, right? As opposed to a stingy person, let's say, who doesn't do that sort of thing. In fact, he's very jealous of his money or time, right? And that's, and that's a vice. So virtues and vices are character traits and they are behavioral dispositions and more, more or less this way of thinking about character hasn't changed really since the greco-romans i mean if you ask today modern psychologists or cognitive scientists they would tell you that that's pretty much what character is except of course that in modern times modern science has found ways to actually measure uh, different aspects of characters like you know the five, the five big per personality traits and things like that those are those are ways to quantify character um, but other than that the basic idea is, is essentially the same now the question is therefore well can you teach people to be to improve their character and Socrates himself was of two minds about this in in one of the platonic dialogues the uh, the meno he reaches the conclusion that you probably can't really teach virtue or wisdom and the reason for that he says is because you know this is this is an important thing we, we would you would think that if in fact it were possible to teach virtue or wisdom then you would see a lot of teachers out there. You would see a lot of people that get into the business of teaching. And, he, and Socrates looks around and says, yeah, I don't see anybody that does that. Sort of <laughs> so, so it must be that, that makes it, sense. Yeah, right. It must be that it's impossible to teach. However, there is another Platonic dialogue, the Protagoras, where Socrates changes his mind. He starts out at the beginning of that dialogue with the same ideas, like, I don't think that, I, I don't see how virtue could be taught. And then he talks to Protagoras, who is a sophist. And the sophists classically are sort of the arch enemies of Socrates. They're kind of a, on very different uh, positions. But in this particular case, there is an interesting dialogue between Protagoras and Socrates. And Protagoras, by the end of the dialogue, actually has convinced Socrates that, yes, virtue can be taught. And, and the analogy that Protagoras uses, I think, is very insightful. Of course, they say Protagoras, but it's actually Plato, right? Who wrote the who wrote right. the dialogue? Uh, the analogy is is very insightful. So Protagoras says, "Look, virtue or wisdom. Wisdom is a particular type of. It's one of the virtues, right? Uh, so virtues are like a, a type of skill, a, a type of uh, technique. Like imagine you want to learn how to play the flute, for instance, right? Well, virtue is like that. Now, how do you?" go about learning a musical instrument like the flute. Well, you need three things, ideally. You want to learn a little bit of theory. You know, you want to know a little bit about the musical notations and how the notes are related to each other because if you don't know that, you, you kind of go randomly on, on, mm -hmm. the, uh, on the instrument, right? So that, well, a little bit of theory. Ideally, you want a good teacher. Why? Well, you could do it on your own, but it's going to be much more difficult on your own, right? A good teacher is going to be able to point to you the right form, the right way of going about things. It's going to point to you some mistakes and trying to correct them, that sort, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But most importantly, you need 
practice, 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 right? You, you, yeah. you need to do those scales up and down and up and down all the time and then simple tunes and then more complex tunes, etc. an hour, an hour, an hour, after, after hour. Well, essentially, protagonist says, that's the same with virtue. What you need is the theory, meaning what is virtue? Why is it important? How How is it, you know, wh- what counts as a good life? That sort of stuff. What kind of things should I strive for? That's the theory. That's where the philosophy is. It's most theoretical. Ideally, you need a good teacher, somebody, let's say, like Socrates, right? Or Epictetus, or somebody who points out, or Seneca, somebody who points out to you certain things. And then you need a lot of practice. And the mm-hmm. question is, you know, so how do you, Practice. I mean, we all have an idea of how to practice a musical instrument, but how do you actually practice a virtue, right? And there are a number of ways, but let me give you just one example. Let's say that you figured, you know, I'm I'm not generous enough. One of the things that I need to to work on is generosity, which is a virtue. Well, there's a number of things you can you can you can go about it, but one would very simple one could be uh, you get into the habit of putting some change in your pockets before you leave your house and then give that change to the first homeless person you find. No questions asked. Now, initially, this will be fairly awkward, right? You're not used to that sort of thing. You even wonder, you know, is this really the right thing to do? Is Am I really doing something that is worthwhile? Or something? But then the more you do it, the more it becomes second nature. It becomes what Aristotle called a habit. You become more virtuous by initially, in a sense, faking it. Right, you you faking it until you make it, as we as we say today. Yeah. Right. Initially, you, but in a more positive way to put it, I guess, would be initially you mindfully pay attention to a certain and engage in a certain behavior that you decide it is is the right one, and then, however, after a while, that behavior will become automatic. It will become part of you. It will become. A, a standard way in which you do things. You're not even going to think about it. You're just going to do it auto- automatically. So that's uh, that's a good example, I think, a good way of thinking about how to learn and how to practice virtue. And, I, you know, I like the idea of your actions, your behaviors are votes for this, the, who you want to be. If you want to be a generous person, you need to do acts of generosity even if they're smaller, and each time you do one, like you said, it becomes easier, it becomes more natural, and next thing you know, you're you're more generous of a person at, on the whole as, than you were um, prior to do that. So what do you think Socrates' conclusion was after going through this entire relationship with Alcibiades? And, and I think it's pretty clear, you know, that you could say he failed in his attempt, um, at least the result. Um, what do you think Socrates learned or what do you think he thought about that experience? So in, in a sense, he failed, but in a sense, he really didn't, right? I mean, to some extent, uh, one way to look at the interaction between Socrates and Alcibiades is that Socrates figured out that Alcibiades was not cut for being a statesman and he told him so and he advised him, mm-hmm. you know, not, not to do it. And now, of course, it's not it's not up to Socrates to actually make the decision whether to do it or not to do it. That's up to Alcibiades. All that Socrates could do is to, to look at the guy, talk to him, and say, look, I don't think you are that kind of person. So in a sense, it's not really a failure. It's certainly Alcibiades' failure, but it's not necessarily right. Socrates' failure because he did see that this guy was not didn't have what it takes, and he told him so and clearly advised him not, not to do it, not to proceed. In fact... 
we have a record of a number of other examples in which Socrates uh, talks to people in Athens. And in some cases, he says, yeah, you should go on and, and be a politician or a statesman. And in other cases, it, it gives the same advice that he gave to Alcibiades. And more often than not, he actually succeeds. Uh, we, we get all of these examples from uh, one of the alternative sources about Socrates' life, and that's Xenophon's memorabilia. Xenophon was a friend and student of Socrates, just like Plato. But unlike Plato, Xenophon was not a philosopher. He was a general. And he wrote a book, he wrote several books, actually, about about Socrates, one of which is the memorabilia. And the memorabilia has a number of episodes about on, in the life of Socrates. And we get an interesting perspective, different from the one that we get from Plato. For instance, in the memorabilia, there are several characters that interact with Socrates because in, 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 this, in the uh, general idea of, you know, should I become a politician? Should I become a, a statesman or not? And let me give you short, briefly, sort of three examples of how that works. One of sure. these characters is Glaucon, who was Plato's brother. And Glaucon is convinced that he, you know, he knows how to how things work and he needs to get into politics, he needs to to, to, to lead the city. And Socrates puts him through a barrage of questions from which it becomes very clear that now Glaucon really doesn't know what he's talking about. And so Socrates gives Glaucon the same advice that he has given to Alcibiades, you know, don't do it. And Glaucon follows that advice. He leaves politics and he becomes, uh, we're told by, by Plato in the Republic that, that he becomes a good musician. And so there one, there's one case where somebody actually listens to Socrates and succeeds. Then Glaucon, later on, Glaucon's own son, Charmides, is very shy and doesn't want to get into politics, but Socrates thinks he's actually good. He, he thinks that you know he's got the right the right things, and so he actually pushes Charmides to get into politics, and Charmides does, and you know he does okay. Unfortunately for Charmides, uh, he, he got into politics during a very dark period in Athenian history, uh, immediately after the defeat of Athens in the Peloponnesian War. But nevertheless, he follows Socrates' advice and, and tries to do his best. And then there is another character, uh, Eutydemus, who also starts out very sure of himself and says, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what I'm talking about, etc. Socrates goes through the whole shebang again. And in two different episodes that Xenophon tells us about, finally convinces Eutydemus that, no, that's not, you don't want to do that. And Eutydemus, again, listens to Socrates, and it becomes one of Socrates' uh, students and, and best friends. So you could say, actually, that Socrates has a pretty good track record in that, in that area. Now, I'm noticing a, a very familiar trend, and, and that is the ones that want to and think they're qualified yeah, maybe aren't. And the one that was more timid and didn't think he, he, he wanted to or should get into politics uh, maybe should have or, or was maybe more qualified. I, I think yeah. many of us would agree that uh, that's kind of the case today, that the best people who would do the best jobs don't want to get in that mess. And sometimes the most eager are eager because they uh, are hungry for power, um, not hungry to to make improvements. So I yeah, found that a little exactly bit fascinating. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, as you can see, things haven't changed that much in two and a half millennia. You know, one of the one of the questions that I'm reasonably enough asked every time that that we talk about these things is, well, why should we 
you know, read or listen to the Greco-Romans. After all, they lived 2,000 years ago. And, you know, there was not even Facebook at the time, you know, that sort of stuff. And uh, the, answer there, the answer there is, well, because our society is in some respects very different. Certainly technology and science are incredibly different. If, if you wanted to study, you know, physics or or biology, don't, I wouldn't pick up Aristotle because it's, it's way, it's completely outdated. Right. If you wanted to study engineering, I wouldn't pick up, you know, look at the ancient Romans as much as they were incredible engineers. You know, what we do today is much more advanced. But if we're talking about ethics and politics, in other words, how to behave as a human being and how to, to function in society, then things have actually not changed that much. Uh, human nature has not changed, and the situations are very similar. We still want the same things and and dread the same things. Yeah, and and I think even at times we're we're hurt by this bias for for recent things. Um, yeah. Again, to your to your point, science and engineering and things like that. Obviously, we're consistently and always making progress, and innovations are are amazing, and they they certainly compound over time. Uh, but when it comes to other things, I think sometimes we we care too much about the newest book, the newest uh, thing. When there's there's so much very useful, um, important stuff throughout history that that we could go and and learn just as much and and probably even more from. So yeah. I think it's fascinating to go back and examine um, what what these people uh, and what these leaders thought about human nature in a world that was. Very, very different in ways, but with a lot of the same same problems. And I think that's what's so fascinating to read, like uh, Marcus Aurelius. You here's this guy who's totally different from me. The guy's a leader of basically the largest empire in the world, and we have the same problems. He's complaining about the same things that I exactly. complain about. And it's it's fascinating. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite examples there is a letter by Seneca to his friend Lucilius where he complains about the noise coming from the streets of Rome. The bath. And, you know, yeah. yeah. And he's like, oh, I can't write. I can't focus. And I said, yeah, I can I can sympathize. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I laughed at that. We live close to hospitals. It's those dang sirens <laughs> for me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's shift a little bit to, to role ethics, because as I was reading the book, you know, I was thinking about Alcibiades and just really trying to wrap my head around this character. Uh, and you mentioned some of the fascinating things about him, but he was a statesman. He was a military uh, officer at one point. Um, he was kind of this playboy mm -hmm. guy. Uh, he, he was a student, obviously, uh, or a mentee uh, uh, of Socrates. So he's got a lot of different roles to play. I, could, I think you could say he wasn't particularly virtuous in most, uh, if no. any, of those roles. But it did force me to kind of reflect on on my own life. A little bit, and I'm a you know I'm a father, a husband, a son, a brother, a financial advisor. Some of those things were were chosen for me. Uh, some of those things I I chose through my own actions, and you know I think we're all trying to balance those out. I mean, if I spend all my time and energy trying to be the best financial advisor that I can be and build my business to to be some monstrous uh, company, I'm going to neglect being the the father that I need to be and the husband that I need right. to be. So. What can we learn from from the ancients on on how to balance all of those things? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the best source there are actually two sources there, um, both of the, both of which are Stoics. One is a lost treaty by Panicius, uh, who was a middle Stoic, uh, that was exactly on role ethics, so on on 
how to balance different different uh, roles. Now, the, the original is lost, but in fact, we have a summary of it in Cicero on duties. So if you read on duties by Cicero, you get a very nice summary, very, very detailed summary of this, this notion of role ethics. But arguably, the best developed version of role ethics is Epictetus. And um, my friend and colleague, uh, Brian Johnson at Fordham University, actually wrote a book on the, the role ethics of Epictetus, which I highly recommend. The basic idea is Epictetus says there are three fundamental types of roles that we play in life. One is the general role as a member of the human cosmopolis, basically a human being, right? Mm-hmm. Then there are roles that we choose for ourselves given our circumstances, like in your case, you know, your career, uh, or being a father, because that's a choice. And then there are roles that uh, are given to us by the circumstances, such as being somebody's son or daughter or something like that, right? And Epidio says, okay, here, here is how you know you balance these things. First of all, the role of member of the cosmopolis trumps everything else. It overrides everything else. That is, if if you find yourself finding something that undermines the human cosmo, the welfare of the human cosmopolis, then you're doing the wrong thing. Even though you may, it may seem to you that you're being good at your job or your career or good right. with your family or something like that. But if you are, if you, what you're doing is actually undermining the human cosmopolis. Now, when I say that, people say, well, how can I undermine the, the human cosmopolis? I'm not, you know, the president of the United States. I'm not. Yes, but there is all sorts of stuff that local actions that actually contribute to undermine the, the, the cosmopolis. For one thing, every time you mistreat somebody else, a fellow human being, every time you yell at somebody or, or are unfair towards somebody, you are undermining the human fabric, right? The fabric of, of, of human society. So that's one thing right. that you know, happens to us pretty much every day. But also there are more, more or less uh, subtle ways in which we can help or undermine the cosmopolis. For instance, every time you shop uh, for food or for other items, you are having an environmental impact. You are having an impact on other people depending on the choices you make. You're, you, and, and so if you start being, being a little bit more mindful about those, you're being now helpful to the human cosmopolis. Now, Epictetus himself says, you want to do that within a limit. And, you know, we all have limits. It's not like, you know, if you start, if you start putting your, the bar so high that you're going to fail um, because now you decided that you want to pay attention to every single thing you say to every other human being and then uh, everything that you, that, that you do when you shop or eat or something, then, then eventually you're just going to go crazy and you're going to give up. And Epictetus right. himself says, you know, it, it's up to you where you put the bar. But he advises us, the price of your soul, your, the price of your integrity is up to you. But for crying out loud, he says in the discourses, sell it as high as possible, right? So the, don't cut yourself I love that one. too much. Yeah, too much slack, right? So be trying to, do, trying to do your best. Now, what about the other two kinds of roles, the ones that you choose and the ones that are given to you by the conditions? Well, there Epictetus says, look, that I can't tell you what to do in every particular circumstance because it's up to you this this is your judgment it's your life your your uh your situation you're the one that actually knows best but there are general criteria that you can use to make decisions and of course the 
the many of the Stoics used the famous four cardinal virtues as criteria. So they used the the cardinal virtues as kind of a uh, moral compass of of sorts, right? So the, the the cardinal virtues are practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Practical wisdom is the knowledge of what is truly good for you, and it's not good for you or or not good for you not what other people tell you that it's good for you but what truly is good for you and of course for the stoics that boils down to one thing only essentially the only thing that is good for you is good judgment and the only thing that is bad for you is bad judgment everything else kind of follows from those two things right so that's practical wisdom courage is the notion that sometimes you need to do the right thing even though it's going to cost you financially physically emotionally or whatever it is Justice means to treat other people with respect and dignity as human beings, as you would like to be treated. And then temperance is doing things in the right measure, neither neither too much nor, nor too little, right? So for if in life, every time you had to make a decision, you kind of quickly go in your head through the four virtues and say, well, is this wise, courageous, temperate, and just, and if the answer is yes, do it. If the answer is no, don't do it. Um, it's it's pretty simple in in in, uh, in theory. In practice, it can it can get really challenging. <laughs> <laughs> it can indeed, and you know that's one thing I love I love about um, Stoic philosophy in particular is, it, and, it, and maybe it has a bad rap in this in this department. I think people often claim like it's impossible, you know, to 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 do those things all the time. And I would agree. And I, I don't know that the Stoics, um, you know, were intending for anyone to be perfect. There was no perfection. In fact, I think there are a lot of cases in Stoic text uh, where even the ones that maybe we'd consider sages or the closest things to sages that, that have existed admitted they were very much imperfect. And in fact, that's what Marcus Aurelius's writings largely were, were right. reminders to himself, um, kind of calling out his own flaws. Um, so, but that's what I love. It's, it's really a, a relatively simple framework. Yes. Um, it's, it doesn't require a whole lot of, um, deep theory, although you can get into it quite a bit, but, uh, right. no, the but like you said, it, it's hard to practice sometimes. Exactly. The theory is simple. The practice is hard, but then again, that goes for pretty much everything that has value uh, at the end that's of true. the day. Right. I mean, like, uh, you know, I, I regularly, like this morning, uh, I went to the gym and I, I have my trainer and everything. It's not that di- what, what my trainer is teaching me is not very difficult. It's not rocket science. Right. I mean, once you figure out the right. basics of how to use, you know, either machines or weights or something like that, it's, it's not that difficult, but then you need to do it every day. <laughs> and you need, right. you know you keep need to keep going at it so that is the difficult part it's not the theory now the theory is important epictetus uh, does say you know if you don't have theory if you don't understand things then you're going to be acting randomly you're going to be acting blindly so the theory is important but it's not difficult the the, the right. tough part is is really the day-to-day practice and that, yes the stoics do acknowledge that we're all humans except for the sages the sages are you know the exception but there are not many sages around seneca says that uh, uh, the sages as rare as the phoenix right the the mythological bird that rises from from its ashes and according to roman mythology uh, the phoenix rises from its ashes once every 500 years so there's not that many <laughs> sages out there right even epictetus right. who i would actually consider a sage uh he said, you know, I am not a Socrates, but I would like to die 
as somebody who wants to be a Socrates, right? So it's somebody who's tr- striving, somebody who's actually trying to make progress. Yeah, I think that's the key. And Socrates, of course, predated the Stoics, and I think yes. arguably was one of the most uh, influential people on Stoic thought. Um, the most important, I think, thing people think about with Socrates is, is truth, right? Logic, questioning, um, all of these things. What can we do to become more relentless in trying to get to the bottom of things and learn and find truth? How can we be more like Socrates um, in that way? I know it's a big question, but that is that is a big question. But but in fact, the the answer is what I said before: practice, practice, practice. Now, the nice thing about Stoicism is that it gives you plenty of ideas of how to practice. Right. So that's one of the reasons that that Stoicism is a very uh, effective philosophy of life. Is not only because, as you said before, the theory is pretty simple and can be grasped very very quickly. But because it actually comes with a number of exercises or practices that makes it possible for us to keep keep pr- progressing, right? Uh, with my friend and colleague, uh, Greg Lopez, uh, a few years ago, we published a book called The Handbook for New Stoics that actually includes 52 exercises uh, on all sorts of things, depending on what problem you have, if you have, if it's anger management or if it is temperance or if it is whatever, whatever uh, there is an exercise for that. All of those that we got from the ancient Stoics, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, Musonius, Rufus, and I, Heracles mostly. Those are the, the big the big five. So it is a question of practice. And 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 we know how to practice. That's the that's the interesting thing. I mean, as you know, Stoicism gave uh, the impetus for modern cognitive behavioral therapy, which is right. an evidence based, effective type of psychotherapy. Right. So the early uh, CBT back in the 1960s was, in fact, a direct inspiration directly inspired by Epictetus, you know, the, the, the writings of Epictetus and, and Marcus Aurelius. And uh, a CBT practitioner will tell you the same thing. You know, what, what you do in order to improve whatever the problem is, you know, anxiety or anger, et cetera, et cetera, the way to do it is you need to understand a little bit about the theory and then you just, they literally just send you home of homework right, with, mm-hmm. with stuff to do. It's like, okay, try to do this exercise or that exercise, et cetera. Um, so that, that's the way you do it. And you might want to pick a small number, a small subset of exercises that are, on the one hand, that you can do on a regular basis, and on the other hand, that are particularly useful to you. So you might want to try different type, kinds of techniques, for instance, and see what actually fits your problems, your personality, and so on and so forth. Like in, in my case, one of the fundamental ones that I do on a daily basis is the philosophical journaling which is essentially what Marcus Aurelius was doing in the meditations, right? So before the end of the day, I take a few minutes to open up my computer. I have a spreadsheet with a number of questions for myself. And I go over the day and I say, okay, so what, what it is that I, that I did wrong? What did I do right? What I, you know, what I got right? What could I do better the next time around? Mm-hmm. And this becomes a way to, first of all, pay attention to yourself. Because you know that in the evening you have to write down stuff. But it's not just paying attention. It's a way to kind of put yourself on guard. 
Because when I'm about to do something during the day, I know by this point, because it's kind of automatic thought, I know that, you know, tonight I have to, I have to write about this thing and, and I'm not going to lie to myself. You know, this is, this is my own diary. Nobody else is going to read it. So do I really want to write this thing that I'm about to do? Or do I really want to write about this particular sort of reaction or behavior, et cetera? So it kind of becomes a way of uh-huh. preempting your own behavior and saying, you're warning yourself and say, Hey, you probably don't want to go there. So I find those uh, that that kind of exercise one of the most useful in the in the stoic sort of repertoire. Yeah, and I had a discussion with Donald Robertson as well, mm-hmm. and uh, he's you know a- as a therapist, you know prior, he also is very in tune with with how well connected stoicism is with CBT and and can uh, certainly offer many different uh, exercises as you could to kind of help people if they're looking for something. Um, to to work through, you know, improve certain parts of uh, of themselves. So, really cool stuff. And I want to pivot, uh, keep on the stoicism topic for for a bit. But I'd like to talk a little bit about stoic views on on wealth. And you know, the reason I kind of started this show is I wanted to really think about the philosophy of money. You know, people mm-hmm. talk about the psychology of money, and people talk about um money in all these different contexts, but, but there's no real philosophy involved oftentimes. And I wanted to kind of figure out what did people, how did people deal with this in the past? How do people deal with it today? And how can we do better um, in kind of combining a value-based system, um, you know, living virtuously and what role does money play in that? So I think the Stoics had a lot of good things to say about desire and, and wealth uh, in particular. Is there any anything that jumps out um, at you that that maybe would would connect in those areas? Yeah. So the Stoics themselves disagreed a little bit um, about what a Stoic take on money is. Uh, broadly speaking, there were Stoics who were closer to sort of the cynic end of the spectrum. The cynics uh, were these uh, street philosophers, in a sense, that, that, you know, just gave up everything that had to do with property, family. Yeah, you know, almost ownership. like monks. Yeah, so almost like monks. And they were just going in the streets and, and being in the face of people and reminding them that, you know what, you're just not, you're not doing the right thing. So there is a stoic streak uh, sorry, a cynic streak in Stoicism. Epictetus is, clearly comes closer to that. He, he writes in the discourses that, you know, cynicism is a call, basically. And if you can't be a cynic, then at least be a Stoic. So it's like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a second second level, second, second grade. <laughs> at the opposite end of the spectrum, we have people like Seneca, who actually makes fun of the cynics. He says, you know, I, I can be virtuous by, by going around with a, with a nice tunic and wearing good shoes. I don't have to have, you know, to, in order to be wise, I don't have to have, you know, run sandals and, uh, and, and, and holes in my toga. It's like, you know, that sort of stuff. So, so you have different opinions about, about wealth in particular. And Seneca, of course, was very wealthy. He was actually arguably the right. second wealthiest person in the empire uh, after Nero. So perhaps, while on the other hand, Epictetus was known for living a very simple life. And so to some extent, possibly these, these kind of, uh, the two different approaches reflect their actual material situations of these two, these two people. However, what I find interesting is that even Seneca 
who is the the actually really wealthy one who does not particularly like the cynics, etc. Even he says to his friend Lucilius, like, you know, you, we do need to be careful about wealth because wealth increases the number of temptations that we are subjected to. Once you start getting into luxury, for instance, there is no stopping point. There is no stopping rule. If you are talking about, let's say, uh, let's say, talk, let's talk about food. So if you're talking about, you know, I'm hungry and I just need to satisfy my my hunger. Well, you can do that fairly simply. You you don't need anything fancy. You, you know, you need a good amount of nutritious food, and and that's about it. But if you start getting too much into things like you know gourmet. Uh, cuisine, then there is no stopping point because at that point it's like the more the better, the more the better. There is no no stopping rule, right? Uh, which is something that not just the Stoics, but actually the Epicureans pointed out, despite their reputation as the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of ancient <laughs> right. philosophy. Right? They actually Epicurus if felt they're to, pumping the brakes. You've got to exactly right. Pay attention. Yeah, Epicurus himself says essentially the same thing. It's like you know there there are things that are necessary. There are desires that are actually nece- about necessary things, and then there are things that are natural but not ne- necessary, and then there are desires about things that are not a, not at all necessary nor natural, and you should stay away from those. Um, so Seneca's way to deal with this is twofold. Uh, so, so he deals with his own wealth in, in two ways. On the one hand, he keeps reminding himself that all of this is fine as it is, but it, he can give it up in a, in a heartbeat if need be. It's not a problem. And he does near the end of his life. Because at some point when um, Nero was getting increasingly unhinged and Seneca really couldn't control him anymore, Seneca said, thought, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to retire. And Nero didn't want him to retire. And so Seneca basically tried to bribe the emperor into allowing him to retire. He said, you know, take the whole damn thing. I'm just going to keep a house outside of Rome. I just want to do my own thing. So that's a reverse, that's a reverse pension, Massimo. Yeah, exactly. It's a reverse I'll, I'll pension. give you everything to let me retire. Exactly. And so, so, so he apparently was, he keep re- re- repeating to himself, like, this is, this is the kind of thing that we can enjoy as we, while we have them. But at the same time, we need to be ready to let them go if fortune asks for them uh, essentially and apparently he was able to do to do so the other thing that he was doing on a regular basis is um, practice poverty so he was right so for for several days uh during a month for instance he would go fasting he would uh, uh go around with 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 you know bad old old clothes uh, or underdressed uh with com- in comparison with the weather then that sort of stuff and when he was asked you know why are you doing this he said well because i have to remind myself that these things are not actually that important it's nice to have a nice house it's nice to have a nice meal it's nice to have nice clothing but should i for whatever reason lose those things tomorrow i'm okay I, I can I can deal with it and and so so that's that's how Seneca's uh, uh, sort of approaches the issue of, of hell of wealth and I think it's it's the right one it's the right one for for modern times you know it's difficult to be an Epictetus Epictetus really did yeah. did uh, you know practice almost a kind of cynicism and that one is a tough one 
because it really does yeah. uh, mean to live a very minimalist uh, life lifestyle and not not everybody is cut cut out for that but seneca is a good example of how a stoic would go about these things because it's one of the situations where you enjoy what you have while you have it but you remind yourself both in practice and sort of by by uh telling yourself that yeah, these things are pleasant, but they're not necessary. Uh, and I can let them go as soon as I need to. Yeah, when I was reading Seneca, it really reminded me, you know, I think he identified basically what we now call the hedonic treadmill. Right. He he was basically warning, you know, you can you can get out of hand. And once you have one, one thing, you're going to want something a little bit nicer, a little bit more expensive. And then once you get that, you're going to want the next nicest thing and then an, another more expensive thing. And, and he was basically saying, if you get sucked into that, you, you, you're, you're going to have a hard time stopping yourself. That's so, right. I mean, you know, um, you need and, one or two pairs of shoes in order to walk. But then if you start having 15 or 20 or 25, then it's like, well, there's no, no stepping point. If it's if 25, right. why not 100? Exactly. Exactly. What do you think, Massimo, is the most important or at least maybe the most uh, – uh, I guess, widely uh, helpful piece of practical advice that, that we can learn from ancient philosophy? Oh, that's a good question. That's a, that's a tough one because there, there are so many. Uh, my favorite, certainly the one that has made the most impact on my life, is what is sometimes referred to these days as the dichotomy of control, which, however, it's a, I think it's a bad term from which we should actually try to stay stay away because it's it's misleading because it's not really about control it's what epictetus refer himself referred to as the fundamental rule of life and the fundamental rule of life is that we are responsible for certain things and not responsible for other things and that a good life is made of focusing on what you're responsible for and trying to do your best in that area and developing an attitude of acceptance and equanimity toward the things you're not responsible for. Sometimes people use the, the word control, you know, what, is, what you control and you do not control. As I said, that's misleading. Epictetus himself uses the word um, often translated as up to you or not up to you. But right. what he really means is responsible so for instance because if when when you look at the examples that he gives he says look what is it that is up to you you it, what's up to you is is uh judgments about things uh your values you know overtly uh you know accepted values articulated values and your decisions to act or not to act so all of those things you are responsible for, meaning that if somebody were to ask me, you know, are you responsible for your decisions to act or not to act? Yes, of course, because they're my decisions. Are you responsible for the values you hold? Yes, because I chose them. Am I responsible for my judgment calls in any, in any given situation? Yes, because they're my judgments. What are you not, what is not up to you, according to Epictetus, is pretty much everything else. Right. right. Health, wealth, reputation, all of that sort of stuff is not up to you. Not in the sense that you cannot work on those things. Of course you can. But the ultimate outcome, you're not responsible for. So most obviously, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, I can decide to manage my money, let's say, in a certain way, so that I, uh, if I'm lucky, I get to retire in, you know, in, in, a, in a certain way at a certain time, et cetera, et cetera. But as you know, 
managing my yeah I can do the best money management that I that I can possibly master and at the same time you know the market might collapse tomorrow and I might lose half of my pension and there is nothing I can do about it I'm not responsible for the collapse of the market I am responsible for my decisions Right. So if in fact it turns out that let's say, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to teach you what you know much better than, than I do. But if I, let's say I'm approaching retirement and I make the decision to reinvest everything on highly volatile instruments, then I'm an idiot. Right. And right. Then, then I am responsible for that one. That is my decision. But I'm not responsible for the ultimate outcome, for how much money I'm actually going to end up uh, with in, in the bank, because that's up to the markets, to which are, which are the results of thousands of different factors and decisions by other people. So in that sense, that fundamental rule of life, I find it very helpful because it, it helps you to focus on what really is up to you, where your agency is maximized. And the rest, it's important as Epictetus says, not only you have to accept it, but you have to accept it with equanimity. In other words, with kindness, with generosity, with, you know, uh, as a gentleman of old-fashioned times would do. It's like, well, uh, maybe the collapse of the stock market is crap and I lost half of my pension. But you know what? That's stuff that happens, and I need to be okay with it. You know, to be upset about it, to be angry about it, that doesn't that doesn't help. You just say, "Well, I gam- That was a gamble, and I knew that it could go well or it could not go well. Turns out it didn't go well, so too bad. You, you just reminded me of a of a Charlie Munger quote. <laughs> he said, uh, "I've had my Berkshire stock decline by fifty percent three times." It doesn't bother me that much. That's just a natural consequence of adult life. Now, I not too many people can can uh, have the the patience and the and the no. fortitude of right. of Charlie Munger, but I think you're right. I think that's a very good example. And from now on, by the way, I'm going to start calling it the dichotomy of responsibility. There so, you go. <laughs> see if we can get that to to stick. Let's keep moving. I got a couple more questions I'd I'd like to ask as we're getting short on time. If you could send a text message. And it would ping everybody's phone, and they had to look at it. What what would you send? What would you tell everyone? Uh, I would tell them to stop texting and read a book. <laughs> I like that. I mean, you know, I, look, I, I use technology, modern technology, as well. Of course, I I do send text messages, but it is uh, a disturbing trend. I think that I even see in my own students that, for instance, they they. They can't write. They can't read. I'm talking college students. <laughs> um, and right. the reason for that is because they got, they're getting used to these very tiny, fractured little pieces of text with you know bad grammar and all that sort of stuff. So go a little bit easier on the texting and you know just pick up a book once in a while. I love that. I, I, I've spent the last two years. I've probably read more in the last two years than the previous goodness. Uh, it'd probably be embarrassing to say probably 12. So well, good for uh, you. Something like that. So, <laughs> so yeah, hopefully I can, I can keep that going for the rest of my life. But, um, I know you have probably a lot, you've studied philosophy for, for quite some time. And, uh, are there, are there any one or two quotes that you really come back to, um, over and over again that really have just stuck with you and kind of changed how you think about life? Yes. Uh, the first two that come to mind 
right now are one is from Cicero and the other one is from Marcus Aurelius. Uh, Cicero uh, said that um, it is highly unwise to uh, uh, never to question your understanding of reality. I'm paraphrasing here. In other words, you should never be too sure of your opinions. You should always be open to the possibility that you're wrong. And I think that's a really good lesson from you know one of the skeptics of uh, mm-hmm. you know, of of the ancient times, the one by Marcus Aurelius, I it's one of my favorite. It there's a bit in the meditation where he says, um, "So you don't like bitter cucumbers? Don't eat them. Why do you have to go around and complain about the fact that there are bitter cucumbers in the world?" <laughs> and, yeah, that's a great one, right? Yeah, that encapsulates a lot. It's like, okay, the world is what it is. It includes. Why are you like, mad? You know, yeah. Why are you mad? There's nothing you could do about it. For one thing, bitter cucumbers are a thing of the world. But often you do have a choice not to be exposing yourself to bitter cucumbers, so just don't, right? Right. No, that, that my favorite's also by Marcus Aurelius, and it's waste no more time arguing about what a good man should be. Be yes, one, right? And and I've got that on my wall uh, because it's so easy these days to get sucked into silly conversations that end up going nowhere that have nothing to do with with being a good person. <laughs> so yeah. try to stay focused on the on the things um, that that matter. One more question here, Massimo. And this one might, I don't know, I'm curious to get your answer on this. I've asked this to a lot of people, but uh, with the philosophy background you have, I'm really curious. How do you personally define wealth in your life? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Particularly because I don't really think a lot about wealth um, in terms of, you know, sort of financial situation. Uh, It's just not part of my job. I tend to think of wealth as having enough that I can pursue my projects and do the kind of things that make my life meaningful, which includes, for instance, traveling uh, to places, uh, you know, the ability to buy any book that I want if I want it, uh, the ability to spend some good time with my family, uh, you know, that sort of stuff. So to me, wealth is having enough that you can pursue the things that are important for you. More than that, I don't need and and I don't seek, in fact. Well, thank you for sharing that. And where can people find you? More information about your books, including uh, your most recent, The Quest for Character. Uh, you can find everything at massimopilucci.org. And then the book, of course, you can find anywhere books are, are sold, online or offline. Any parting words? Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> Likewise. Thanks for thanks for uh, joining me, Massimo. I really enjoyed it and uh, appreciate all your work in, in spreading stoicism and practical philosophy and uh, look forward to continuing to learn from you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Massimo and learned a little something along the way. It doesn't matter if you're talking about business, personal relationships, or life in general. Developing character is critical to living a life well-lived. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to Philosophy to get notified when new episodes drop. We've got an all-star lineup of thought leaders queued up, and you won't want to miss these conversations. Thanks for listening.